This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. One of the bigger mistakes that retailers can make today is believe that they are all the same. The individual needs of one person will most likely be different from many others. Luckily for customers or consumers, I should say, more and more companies are recognizing this issue. Unfortunately, not all do. Wharton's Peter Fader and Sarah Toms look deeper at this issue in a new book that they have collaborated on. It's titled The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. Peter is a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School. Also with us, Sarah Toms, executive director and co-founder of Wharton Interactive. They're going to be co-hosting Marketing Matters uh, tomorrow at 5 p.m. for a special customer centricity episode. Great having you both here. Thanks very much for coming in. Dan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And also with us, Rachel Kipp from the Knowledge Award and staff. Good seeing you as well. Nice seeing you too. So, uh, Peter, this has been an area that customer centricity that you have looked at for, for a good amount of time now. I've been looking at it. I've been shouting about it. I've been doing research on it. I've been talking to a lot of companies about it. Uh, when I first started down this path <clears throat> around 10 years ago, a lot of it was dismissed. You know, we have a product to sell. You know, yeah, we'll be nice to the customers too, but it's all about the product. Well, that is clearly changing, and it's great to hear uh, companies talking more and more about recognizing that not all, not all customers are the same, uh, uh, realizing it's an aspiration for them to treat different customers differently. Uh, this new book is, is to turn that aspiration into action. Uh, and as you said in the title, it's how to implement strategies that are taking these yeah. ideas and bringing them to life. So, Sarah, what, the interest of, that you bring to this topic comes from where? So my interest really started, I was an entrepreneur myself for over 10 years and read Pete's book before I even met him when I took over the Learning Lab about five years ago. I actually have a new title now and a new team. It's Executive Director of Wharton Interactive. And working through and creating a simulation is where we really began our collaboration. So it was taking decades of marketing research and we actually had to create artificial customers. How do how do customers act? How do they perform? And looking at making if you're making decisions as a business and investments in your customers and how you acquire, retain and develop them, what happens? How do you drive value? Now, Pete, in your previous book, you you mentioned that some of the companies, if you ask someone on the street what companies are most customer-centric, they may some, say something like Starbucks or Nordstrom. And you mentioned in this book, too, that those companies may not be as customer-centric as we think, but now they're doing better. So could you explain that? Yeah, I don't want to take credit for, for what those companies have done, but it's great to see. Those are two really good examples of companies that... We're, we're touted for just having a just kind of a nice atmosphere. It was you know customer friendly, uh, which is a, a fine attribute. But that's different than understanding each and every one of your customers at a granular level and using that understanding to really drive differential treatment of them. But the, but it's great to see how those two companies, among many others, have come along really far since I wrote my first book about about five six years ago. Uh, things like loyalty programs, things like using knowledge of the customers to drive decisions about what products and services to offer instead of just doing them because they 
thought it was a, a good fit with the other things that they did. So lots of other companies have been waking up, some of them doing it out of opportunity, like, you know, hey, there's money to be made by understanding these differences. Some doing it out of desperation because they're looking at big, bad Amazon breathing down their <laughs> neck and they know they need to do something different. Uh, but whatever the reason, it's great to see companies starting to move in this direction. And I think they'll be the first to acknowledge they need a little bit of guidance. And that's our job. Now, one of the things that you guys both, that you advocate for in this book is the power of a simulation. And this, Sarah, this is something you do in your job. So can you talk a little bit about, both of you, how you use simulations and how companies can kind of take a cue from that? Sure. So here at the Wharton School, we have a rich culture, teaching and learning culture based in experiential learning. So we, Wharton students, we have about 20,000 student plays per year that our various simulation teams are supporting here. And what we're really looking to do is bring the theory to life. So what our faculty have been working on in their research and figuring out how to build compelling simulations so that our students can actually experience what it's like to make decisions in that sort of environment. And so, yeah, it, it's really been an amazing experience here and then getting to collaborate with Pete and taking all of his research and bringing that to life in simulation as well. So here's my take on it. I have a full semester course where I'm teaching all this customer centricity stuff. Let's read about it. Let's talk about it. Let's look at case studies and so on. And at the end, I'd have this brief little simulation type thing. I developed it in Excel. Uh, it, it was a nice idea, but it didn't do justice to the richness of the material. And that's why I turned to Sarah and said, let's build this thing out in a way that would be appropriate for an institution yep. like Wharton and to really make it compelling, to really not dumb down the ideas, but to, to bring them out in, in their full complexity. And what happened is that simulation, instead of just being the capstone, kind of the, the cherry on top of, of the cake at the very end, uh, be, uh, became the real driver. And now when we're doing executive education, instead of using it as a little wrap-up, we use it as an intro. Let's just throw people into this customer-centric world and have them make decisions and so on. Uh, and then uh, along the way, we said, you know, we need to give them some support material so that they can do this in better or learn from it. And that was the real genesis of the book, is, is how to really cope with a customer-centric world, whether it's a simulated one or a real one. Now, if I'm a company and I'm trying to build a simulation or even build a data stack to start doing this sort of thing, how, where do you start? I mean, what kind of things would you look at to start? It starts at the end. Well, the end of the title, that is customer lifetime value that uh, both from a, a conceptual standpoint as well as a practical one if i can pull out my magic wand uh, and wave it and see the future value of each and every customer i would run my business differently i would recognize that there's different value to be gained out of different kinds of customers and that would drive the decisions so that's what i've been saying for a long time but again it's been kind of aspirational now we're really bringing it to life both in the sim and in this book uh, to be able to say, uh, how do you do all that? Sarah? Yeah, and what we really looked at when Pete and I began to collaborate on the simulation is understanding the trade-offs that need to happen in the real world. So we're obviously not giving our students the unlimited budget. They're having to decide, okay, when I'm looking at acquisition strategies and tactics, when I'm looking at retention development, I have a CRM which is giving me imperfect data. How do I actually put all of this together and then make these decisions in a very realistic way? What I'm really proud about with this simulation is it actually simulates down to the customer level. They are being born and dying, the, the model underneath it. So to your question, it's incredibly complex and very difficult. The simulation itself took Pete and I years to develop. 
and has become now one of our most popular offerings here at the Wharton School. So, yeah. But how important is that with the successes that you're, you're seeing uh, in working with some of the students? How important is that to now maybe even to get that out there in the public and working even closer with some of these companies to be able to for them to understand the mistakes that they may be making right now that are costing them customers? Yeah, and that's exactly the goals of the new team that I've co-founded here at the Wharton School. Wharton Interactive is about taking this thought leadership that we're creating here at the Wharton and offering it to the world. So that is exactly yeah. the goal of this new team. One of the co- one of the companies you also mentioned in the book is EA Sports. And I, and I wanted to bring that up because I guess they're an example of a company that was so far to one side on the negative, yet they have come back so far the other way on the positive. Or, or maybe they're both at the same time. And that, that's yeah. the beauty of it, is that not all customers are created equal. We, we're not going to be everybody's best friend. And there are going to be some haters out there. We're not going to judge ourselves by the least happy customer. We're going to judge ourselves by the most valuable customers. So, so EA, beyond just EA Sports, but in all of Electronic Arts, has come to realize that there are some incredibly valuable customers out there. It's impossible to turn everybody into someone like that. Uh, that They'll continue to face a lot of backlash from people who don't like particular features of particular games. But in many cases, that's okay because they're not that valuable to the company. Now, they don't want, right. they don't want anyone to be unhappy, but they realize that by focusing more on, on the right kinds of customers, the right kinds of players, they can do much better than just kind of playing it right down the middle and trying to be you know, pretty good to everyone. Now, you actually use, in the beginning of this book, you use Michael Phelps, the swimmer, as an example of the adage that what you say is good customers are born good. Can you explain that a little bit? And also, I mean, is it always that clear? Like, I could look at Michael Phelps and think, yeah, he's probably a pretty good athlete. But is it always that clear who the best customers are? Well, for one thing, Sarah and I are both very avid swimmers. The difference is she was born good, I'm not. Um, So it was kind of a a very natural metaphor to use. And I give Sarah all the credit for first coming up with it. And maybe it is a little bit of uh, extreme, but I think it gets the point across really well that when when it comes to sports, you know, some people clearly are born good. And you know you'll never become that, at least I know I'll never become that, but when it comes to customers, we often, we think we have more control. You know, we talk about CRM, customer relationship management, as if we think that we can manage and create customers. We don't have nearly as much control, and and maybe that that point's a little bit too extreme, but I think it, it gets it across pretty well. Yeah, exactly. So with Michael Phelps, and we do make this point in the preface, it's easy to tell he's good because it's you just see his time. Right. Well, and it's not even just looking at him. Look at the time. And customer centricity really is about the long game. So what we are asking for and what we our goal in writing this book was really to hit the reset button. We hear the words customer centricity all the time, and mostly they're incorrectly stated. And we also wanted to draw and provide a playbook for how to actually enact a customer-centric strategy from the standpoint of how are you going to recognize who your best customers are. Looking at your CRM, looking at what insights you want to do, and then running your different tactics in a way that are tuned to the value of your customers, understanding that you can't only have high value. You need actually that uh, the complements of your lower value and your mid-tier customers, but what are you going to do for them once you've gained them? You also take that a step farther. You also take it to the point of of 
companies, of organizations that have multiple brands underneath them. You mentioned Gap Incorporated in the book and the fact that they have Old Navy and Athleta and, and Banana Republic. And being able to understand, I guess, the customer within that realm, but the fact that they may be crossing over to to a variety of different brands as well. You know, it's a really interesting time for, for retailers and business in general. That on one hand, you get a lot of these these uh, narrow, you know, digitally native brands, and they're they're tightly focused on one kind of customer. And while they might do very well there, unless until you can cross over and, and attract a, a broader variety of customers, you're never going to find kind of the the, the world class success that investors might demand. Uh, on the other hand, you look at at a gap or any kind of kind of multi-divisional company, uh, and sometimes they're spread out a little too thin. So finding that just right balance where we can have multiple touch points with multiple customers and and not treat them as separate silos, but actually learn from them to have the breadth of a customer base that's going to help us understand uh, each and every one a little bit better than if we were just a, a single brand company. So I'm curious about like so you have a you have a pyramid in the book and at the top is the platinum we have the platinum customers and the bottom we have what you call the lead customers. Now I think it's probably pretty easy to figure out like what to do to make the lead customers happy because they have a pretty low bar like if you give me a sale if you supersize me I'm happy. But what about those platinum customers? I mean, how hard is it for companies to figure out like what those platinum customers want, how to make them happy and cultivate them so they continue being your best customers? So that's a great question and actually goes to the root of that entire chapter where we take it to the next step with the two by two. And so it's first recognizing the value where your customer sits on that pyramid. And second, what, how are you going to direct those uh, specific tactics to them? So looking at your lower value customers and are you running offense or are you running defense? A lot of folks will look at something like customer service and they think, well, now we're starting to call it customer experience. We're starting to call it all these new newfangled words. But what Pete and I actually believe is customer service is akin to clean toilets. And it's pretty <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's pretty controversial when we say this in front of a room of executives or others and we say, look, you know, everybody, you know, they expect when they pick up the phone that they're going to have and this is your low value and your high value. And so what we're saying is you're actually you're running offense for your lower value customers. Your other programs, though, such as loyalty, your strategic account managers and others, you, you want to really make sure that you're tuning those strategies to your specific value of customer. But then at the high end, as, as you mentioned, Rachel, there's a lot of companies that uh, once they see the value of, of the customers, they see these high end ones and they say, oh, we need to be their best friend. We need to be talking to them all the time. We need yeah. to. Are, are, are you happy? Is there anything wrong? Can we give you a glass of champagne? And they actually start annoying them. So you have to find ways uh, to to maintain and enhance that value, but without doing it in an intrusive way. And so one of the things that we point out in the book is the idea of a premium service, is let them be part of the special club and give them access to yeah. different kinds of products and services that others just don't have access to, and they're probably willing to pay for that. So it's recognizing the difference between that and just kind of you know low-end customer service, but understanding at what time and for which customers are you going to be using one tactic or another. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney and Rachel Kipp inside our studio with uh, Peter Fader and Sarah Toms, who are the authors of the book, The Customer Centricity Playbook. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment on Twitter, at bizradio one. 132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney 21. Sarah? Yep. 
Sorry. Go ahead. You wanted to add something? Yeah. So I wanted to pick up on that premium. And one of the concerns that we often hear is, oh, we're going to really upset customers by having something like a premium service. And what Pete and my point is, is don't worry about that. You know, LinkedIn is a great example where they've been able to drive a tremendous amount of revenue by offering a premium service. You think about Amazon Prime, you think about others, and this really is uh, an opportunity to figure out what value are you leaving on the table that you can actually extract and make these customers even more valuable. And, and it's and it's also the fact you mentioned as well, the fact that you, you're, you have that relationship with the customer, but also this will drive some of the other things that companies will do, their marketing, their customer service. They, there's a variety of different elements that kind of spider web off of this as well, correct? It's a really important point that customer lifetime value isn't just about figuring out which message to send to which customer which time. It should be a corporate-wide strategy. It should be right. tied in not only with marketing, but also with with uh, with finance and sales and HR. And everybody in the organization should be thinking along these lines. Who are the best customers? What is it that we can be doing with and for them to, to enhance and extract some of that value? It's much more than just some kind of marketing flavor of the month. I'm really bringing it back to the playbook. And when Pete and I were laying out how we wanted to you know, construct this and thinking about the different functional areas within a company, Pete's absolutely right. You know, we have a chapter directed specifically at finance. We have a chapter directed specifically at technologists. You know, this really is about bringing everybody together and thinking about CLV in a universal way and how each of those different functions are going to leverage that information or support the strategy behind providing that information. Now, Pete, you've done a lot of work about in putting value, like in considering value of customers when you consider corporate valuation. Now, what do you think that's getting at that our current ways of valuing companies are not getting at? Hashtag customer-based corporate valuation. Yep, that's a big thing I've been working on right now, both in a lot of my academic research as well as this new startup that I have, Theta Equity Partners. It's been fascinating to work with CFOs and VPs of investor relations and get them on board with this idea of customer equity. What's the value, the future value of all of our existing customers? And using that... First of all, for corporate valuation, to say well, this is just a different perspective to see what this company's worth. But then once you have credibility on that, to then throw it over the fence and then let the marketers figure out which emails they should be sending to which customers. <laughs> so it's been a great way to, to create that kind of alignment and to get people in the organization who might hear this kind of you know cross-functional blah-blah and dismiss it <laughs> to say, no, there really is something here for me. Uh, and it's been just just wonderfully successful for, for me and my students and others I work with and, and enlightening for companies. Now, one of the examples you give in the book is of Blue Apron, which was a company that looked amazing from some from one perspective. But then when you looked at it from the customer valuation perspective, something else emerged. It, exactly. And we bring it up in our discussion of, of acquisition addiction. There's a lot of companies that for a variety of reasons think we just got to bring in as many customers as possible. Either under the misguided belief that they'll turn all of them into wonderful customers by educating them and building great relationships with them, or under the uh, uh, similarly but different naive belief that investors are only looking at top-line revenue, uh, and if we're just bringing in dollars, ka-ching. But if you're bringing in a lot of customers who only buy once and they don't stick around, then that's not so good. And that's exactly what was happening with Blue Apron and with other companies that, that were willing to call out. That it's really important to look at the relationship, not just the faceless, nameless customers. Uh, how many people are you acquiring and how often are they then buying again with you? Let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is involving the companies themselves. But are there elements of this that, that really consumers can 
can get a better understanding of of what is going on with the retailers that they deal with. I mean, there's probably some some points that that really can resonate with with the people that are listening to us out there. It's a really important point because uh, 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 customers understand that they're going to be treated different from each other. You know that when you're sitting on an airline that you paid a different fare than the person next to you. Right. That should become more the norm. That again, it shouldn't be just lowest common denominator marketing. It should be that you know what I'm going to be treated differently based on my value to the firm. Uh, and so part of it is we're not only legitimizing those ideas, we're giving firms specific instructions yeah. of how to do it and how to communicate it. Sarah? Yeah. I, I Actually, that was such an interesting question, and uh, I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective of the customers themselves. I think, though, this really uh, we brought this out in the story about Best Buy and really thinking about what the motivations are of the people who were standing in the aisles and then taking their business elsewhere. And then as soon as the company understood that actually those customers really did have potential to stay, and it was really unlocking why and how to get them to become high-value customers. The potential was there, but because uh, of things like price and not actually bringing to bear the service that these customers needed, they were losing that opportunity. And once they understood that, they then were able to tap into the potential lifetime value of Otherwise, customers who are literally walking out of the door. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Sarah. Great seeing you again both. Thank you. Thank you. The book, again, is the Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by uh, Customer Lifetime Value. The book is available uh, in bookstores and online for your purchase by our friends at Wharton Digital Press. Rachel, thanks very much for coming over as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 